this morning, uh, we are going to be talking about part two a little bit of the battle between little David and big Goliath. Uh, but before we do that, uh, one of my sons has asked me for a long time, Dad, can you play a video clip from Nacho Libre in church? Now, the first time I saw Nacho Libre, I was like, this is the stupidest movie in the world, okay? This, it's the kind of movie that grows on you a little bit. The second time I thought, this is the most sacrilegious movie I've ever seen in my life. The third time I watched, I said, wait a minute, I think I get it now. They're not trying to be sacrilegious. They're not trying to be sanctimonious. They're not trying to be any of these things. It's just sort of a comedic superhero story. And instead of having a cape, it's in a wrestling costume. So, But uh, this one scene sort of fits in right in with God blessing the battles that are honorable. So we're going to go ahead and open up the topic a little bit more as a tribute to my kids getting off my back. Watch a little clip here from Nacho Libre. Buenos dias, sister. So what you cooking? Breakfast. Ignacio, you have a responsibility to these children. I know. Well, where have you been? I've been gone because I had a lot of churchy opportunities lately. Outside of the orphanage. Like what? Where were you last night? To tell you the truth, I went to a wrestling match. Lucha Libre. You went to watch a wrestling match? Kind of. You are a man of the clothes. Lucha Libre, it's a sin. But why? Because those men fight for vanity, for money, for false pride. This is terrible, terrible. But is it always a sin to fight? No. If you fight for something noble, or for someone who needs your help, only then will God bless you in battle. You must pray for forgiveness. Well, today we are talking about a battle that God definitely blessed between, like I said, little David and big Goliath. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning of verse 50. If you don't, I'm going to have every verse up here on the screen for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open up to the Word of God now, I pray you'd open up our hearts, God. Open up our hearts to receive even just one thing this morning, God that will not only encourage us, not only be useful and helpful to us, but Lord, draw us closer to you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I grew up in the great state of Michigan. And in Michigan, you wouldn't believe it, it's not known for it, but in Michigan, there are a lot of snakes. A lot of snakes. We got your gardener snakes, we got your water moccasins, we got some diamondbacks all kinds of different snakes. And every spring when the snow thaws and melts and everything, the snakes want to reclaim the state. 
And so every spring you got to, you know, go out there and figure out a way to get rid of them. Well, I was my mother's way to get rid of them. So uh, once a spring, you know, we just kind of clear uh, the property out from snakes. And the worst part is, is they're kind of everywhere. I mean, you don't have to go far to look for them. Most of them are, you know, not poisonous. But, the, the, they'll, you know, the water moccasins, when they bite you, you know, your, your arm will swell up real big. It hurts. It's not something you want to have happen. You don't want to step on a snake head have its fang go into your heel. I had to have it once. You know, it hurts, you know, and even if it's just a little bee sting type hurt, it hurts, right? We don't want hurts. So the fact is, in Michigan, they're kind of everywhere. They're on the land. They're on the water. They're in the sand. They're even in the toilet. You know, almost every year, once a year, you hear this news story, big old snake in the toilet. Don't know how it got there, who knows, but, you know, they're just everywhere. And I'm not sure... If I'm afraid of snakes, I don't mind picking them up. Uh, they're not, I mean, they're not my favorite animal. In fact, over the course of my life, most of the snakes I've met, I've killed, you know. So it's nothing personal to the snakes. They're like spiders, you know. Most of the ones I meet, you know, seem to meet an untimely end. <coughs> And, and it's kind of funny because if you've never killed a snake, you know, you, you just, you see it, oh, there it is, you know, you creep up next to it, you grab a stick, right? And where do you poke the stick? Right near the head, right? You know, and so you get it and it starts flipping and flopping, you know, and then you just kind of grab the head and you grab the tail. And then what do you do? Anybody know? You just what? Right? <laughs> you know, and you hear it, you know, it, it sounds kind of like that, you know, and, and, and you know, you, 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 you know, you've done something, but you don't know. It's completely dead, so I take out my little pocket knife, right? And all of a sudden, the head, you separate the head from the tail, all right? Now, any of you who have ever killed snakes before, all you snake killers out there, what happens to the rest of the body after you cut the head off? It continues to wiggle. It's the freakiest thing in the world because you're looking at it, and you know it's dead, and yet it still seems very much alive. That can be how the enemy is in our lives. We can know that the, that the power of the enemy is broken in our lives, and yet when we look at this thing wiggling and whirling, we can think it's very much dead, even though when you look at each hand, you got the head on this hand, you got the body, it is dead. But even though snakes can be dead, they can still be deadly. If I didn't dig a deep hole and bury those fangs, I'd get in trouble. Why? Because you can still step on a dead snake's head and it will pump its venom into you. Now, in the north, in Michigan, that's not that big a deal. We don't have those kind of poisonous snakes. But in the south, southern belt, and we're in the southern belt, right? Uh, I mean, you, you can snap on a dead rattler snake or a dead poisonous snake and it can be fatal. So even though the snake is dead, it can still be deadly in my thesis for this morning is that even though the giant is dead it can still be deadly let's pick it up in first samuel chapter 17 verses 50 to 57 this is the victory so it says in verse 50 remember david slung that stone and the stone went at about 200 miles an hour and it struck uh goliath's parietal lobe and it killed the bible makes it very clear that was the death blow. The stone killed him. He fell forward dead, all right? 
So he fell forward dead. The armor bearer takes off, who knows where, and the whole army takes a step back because they're kind of freaking out now. And it says, beginning in verse 15, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And then David ran over and stood over him and he took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. You know, you know what's coming here, right? After he killed him, he took the sword and he cut off his head. Just, I mean, we think David is this nice little shepherd boy, you know. David is a killer. I mean, he took a sword and decapitated this guy. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran, right? Remember, Goliath was a Philistine. Philistines see him go down. They get scared. They tuck tail and run. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout, pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. Those were two fortified cities of the Philistines. And their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim Road. I've been watching a lot of Middle Eastern movies lately. The Sha'arim Road uh, to Gath and Ekron. And of course, you know, it, it's horrible to be in an army. You know that story about the bear, right? I don't have to be faster than the bear. I just have to be faster than you. That's the dead. That's what happened. You know, the other Philistines are looking and saying, I don't have to be faster than the Israelis uh, chasing us. I just have to be faster than you. And that was true for that day because there were dead everywhere. In fi verse 53, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp, got the spoils of war, and David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. By the way, verse 54 and verse 57 are out of chronological order. That's not the first place David would take Goliath's head. It was actually one of the last places, but isn't that kind of weird? He took the head all the way to Jerusalem. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Why would David do that? Verse 57 picks it up right after, the, right after he beats Goliath and says, As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with David still holding the Philistine's head. Why did David cut off Goliath's head? Was it just so that, you know, guys like me who are into that kind of stuff can go, cool, you know, cut off the head, yeah, you know I mean? Or was it meant to be a dramatic and emphatic statement? Which I believe it was. I'm going to give you four reasons why and then a couple of points to take home. First of all, cutting off Goliath's head stands as a reminder that even though Goliath is dead, he can still be deadly. Even though it was the stone that caused the fall, David knew that he needed to chop off the head because there was still a deadly fear that a full-bodied Goliath could instill upon his people even though he was dead. Let's face it. Uh, when you see David fall, you're thinking something. When you see him decapitated, you're convinced the dude is dead. Amen? Remember, the snake still wiggles, and David knew that. David knew we, that his people might still be afraid of a wiggling snake or the fangs that could still poison. Your giant may be dead, but it can still be deadly. The enemy has been defeated, 
but he tries to convince you he's not, right? The enemy is the one who sows things like fear, anxiety, depression, control, enablement, all those unhealthy bad behaviors that swirl around, laziness, uh, discontentment, all of these things that can cause our lives to be this drudgery, evil, sin-soaked thing. That has all been defeated by Jesus Christ at the cross. But David and Jesus are well aware of the fact that even though the enemy has been defeated, he can try to convince you that he's not. And if he can convince you that he's not, you'll still live defeated even though he has been. And so that's why sometimes it's not just important to kill the giant. Sometimes you have to cut it off at the head. Whenever you overcome something, there's a temptation to declare your freedom a little too soon, a little too early. And uh, sometimes we have to see that Jesus, although he has completely freed us from the process of fear and sin, that the process of walking out our freedom is something we should show due caution. For example, you wouldn't call up a former alcoholic and say, hey, heard you quit alcohol, great. Why don't you come on over, let's have a drink together. He wouldn't do that, right? There's a, a caution and a respect for what it took to take down that giant. You wouldn't tell a former gossiper, hey, hey, have you heard about what Mark said the other day? Baruch Hashem. You thought he was sneezing? He was talking about you behind your back, you know? I'm, you know what I'm saying? You, know, you wouldn't go up and... Begin to gossip with someone who used to struggle with gossip and criticism is trying to come out of it. You know, you wouldn't ask a control freak. Well, what do you think I should do? If someone's a control freak, don't ask them for advice. Let them get over it, okay? You know, the last thing they need is someone else saying, can you control my life for me because you have so much power and I don't. You know, okay? You know, you don't do that. The giant is dead, but sometimes we fail to cut off its head. I love what Jack Hayford, one of my mentors, uh, said. He said this quote. He said, the sin may no longer have power over you, but you may not be done with the sin. He says, and over time, your body and your mind make it hard to walk away, for you have to cut it off at the head. Number two. David didn't want God's people to suffer any more fear. Let's face it. You got a big old giant staring you down, taunting you, and he did this for six weeks every day. No break. These people were traumatized. These people were psychologically damaged. When David showed up, he did not see an army ready to fight a war. He saw an army bent on fear and paralyzation and retreat. These people were psychologically damaged. And David realized seeing the giant fall is one thing. Seeing the giant decapitated, that's another. You know, when my kids used to get nightmares, sometimes they still do actually, but when they used to get nightmares, you know, they were convinced something was in the closet. Just convinced, you know? And I, I would go there and I would tell them, you know, just like God tells us, 
there's no boogeyman in the closet. There's no boogeyman in the closet. There's no monster in the closet. No. I mean, sometimes God tells that over and over and over, and we just don't believe him. We're just convinced that catastrophe and danger is right around the corner. We're just convinced that tragedy is right around the corner, and, 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 and God himself could not talk us out of it. So what I would do is sometimes I'd say, okay, you know what? Even if it's 2 and 3 in the morning, turn the light on, walk into the closet, Every now and then I'd be a little freaked out, like, there better not be a monster in the closet here, God. You know, <laughs> walk into the closet, right? Wave my hands, do a little dance. See, there's nothing in here, you know? Daddy, I don't believe you. Get the cell phone out, shine the light, you know? There's nothing in here, you know? I mean, just doing this whole thing. And finally, after a little while of doing that dance, they believed me because I, I had to cut the head off and show them the giant is dead. Wayne, you'll appreciate this. I found this story as I was researching this. There's a guy who had come back from the Vietnam War. And his memories and the trauma of that experience was his giant. And he told preachers and pastors, man, there's no amount of prayers you can pray that are going to heal me from that, what that war did to me finally he narrowed it down to it was a particular battle in a particular battlefield outside of a particular town that had traumatized him and so <clears throat> in in the mid-1990s uh, the clinton administration was able to reestablish uh ties and trade and and economic relations uh with the 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 with vietnam and so, and, and it happened quickly, and it really happened. I mean, we're, we're trading, we're visiting. You could go on vacation there now. Some of the most beautiful places and beaches on earth. Uh, right now, you can go to Vietnam, you know, and, and, and it's, it's wide open for tourism and trade. Well, in the mid-1990s, I think it was the late 1990s, this guy was so broken up that somebody suggested, well, why don't we go back together? Why don't we go back and see it? Now, his psychiatrist and all, they were all telling him, no, don't, don't, you need to move on, you don't need to go back. But something in him said, you know what, I want to go back. So he flies over to Vietnam, lands there inside the country, and then asks this, um, this travel agency that they had hired, we want to go to this spot. He's got a map and a town. We want to go to this spot, and we want to see the field. And, and all the Vietnamese are scratching their head. There's no field there, you know. We, no, no, it's here. I was here. I was here 30 years ago. Trust me, I was here. I've thought of nothing since. So the guy's like, okay. So they start driving. And all of a sudden, what was once a battlefield strewn with dead and wounded is now this beautiful, and, he, and the way he described it, beautiful resort hotel with manicured grounds, fountains, and pools, People from all over the world, Japan, China, Europe, enjoying this spot that for him had carried so many nightmares and memories. And as he saw and he walked around, he said, it's, it's over. My, my war is over. It's over. This, it's all gone. It's been plowed and replanted, and now it's a beautiful, and, and this, was his, this is how it came up in my internet search. He said, my giant is dead. My giant is dead. So I can't even go back and see where it happened because it no longer exists anymore. Only here. And he's, did every, he's done everything he can now 
to begin to attack that giant and get over that experience, which is not easy. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes, Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, a lot of people say, you know, why couldn't Jesus just take a bullet? <laughs> why couldn't he just take a spear? There are easier ways to die. Well, when Jesus hung on that cross, you know what he was doing? He was holding up the head. It was meant to be emphatic. It was meant to be dramatic. It was meant to imprint deep into the minds who had both crucified him and were mourning his crucifixion. It meant to be a bold statement of his love and of his sacrifice. That's Jesus holding up the head saying, you know what? I may be dying here, but in a few minutes after, and Jesus, what was Jesus' last words? He said, it is finished, right? And for all of us, you know what we think of? Our sin was finished, right? All of that that keeps us from heaven is finished. All of that that keeps us from God is finished, right? We, we can have Jesus in our heart, and all of a sudden, we're God's friends. We're forgiven of everything. We're gonna die and go to heaven. We're gonna see our family and friends. We're gonna, it's gonna be a great reunion, and that's great, and you should think that. But that's only half of what happened that day. You know what the other half of what happened? Jesus planted a thermonuclear bomb in hell and obliterated it. All its power, all its authority, gone. The only power the devil has over you is his ability to lie to you. If he can get you to con be convinced that he's not defeated, then he will be working active in your life. But the moment you stand up and say, no, wait a minute, in the name of Jesus, you're done. You're done. You know, it was about 10 years ago, before I moved to California, I was in this youth pastor's thing. And this youth pastor was driving a church. And, and in Washington, this would have been very, uh, quite a sight. He's driving a church, and a girl in very short shorts and a bikini is jogging on the side of the road. Totally, I mean, just, drive, just totally took his attention. And he's one of those guys when he, when he looks right, he turns right. You know? So he just drove up right up onto the curb. It didn't hit anything. But I mean... Everybody around is watching this doofus drive up on the right side of the curb. And uh, for, for a three or four second glance, and he said, caught my attention, and I just could not, I just like, what the heck is that, you know? And he, he drove up on the curb. He said, I got into church, and I sat in my car, and for the next three to four hours, all I could hear in my mind was, what kind of pastor are you? You should just quit right now. You don't deserve to be here. You, now, granted, 99% of males probably would have had this, you know, and the 1% are lying. And, 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 and he sat there, and, and, and when he came to the cadre meeting, he came in defeated. He's like, you know, I don't know if I have any business. He told the story, and we all looked at each other like, who, nobody would have passed that test here in, you know, in Washington when it's 40 degrees out. That just doesn't look right, you know. And so, you know, we all, and I could just hear it over and over. I said, look, even if you did it, even if you looked, you know you shouldn't have looked. Jesus paid for that one as well. Jesus paid for that one as well, you know.
And, and you could just see the fact that the enemy was just trying to convince him, I'm not defeated, I'm alive and well, and I'm ruling over your life. No, Jesus disarmed all of the principalities at the cross. We are forgiven. We are not under condemnation, amen? Uh, number three, this is another thing emphatic. David wanted to show the enemy that the victory was no longer theirs. He said, look, look at Goliath's mouth. It ain't talking anymore. Look at Goliath's mouth. No boasts. No, uh, you know, uh, you know, look at Goliath. He's done. He wanted the enemy to say, look, you sent this guy and God took care of it. Sometimes we spend so much time talking to God about our problems. What if we start talking to our problems about God? Maybe our problems would begin to run. If we start telling our problems, man, you keep doing this to me, I'm going to call down the name of Jesus. He's going to just get you right there, you know. You, you begin to see your problems will begin to take a back step. Whoa. And they'll back up, and they'll back up, and they'll keep backing up. Why? Because we are now coming at our problems in the name of Jesus. Rather than sitting and looking at God, God fix the problem, God fix the problem, and the problem's just staring us in the face. Stare at the problem and tell the problem how big God is rather than telling God how big the problem is. And then number four, David wanted to bring the head of Saul and have it publicly shown. And this is key. David didn't want to hide this, nor should he have. David wanted to publicly show the giant. My giant is dead. You know, when you meet with a former alcoholic or you meet with a former drug addict, they'd love to tell you how many years they've been sober or they'd love to tell you how many years they've been clean. And sometimes I'll talk to people and they're like, man, you know, why does that dude always do that? Why has it always been about how many years he's clean or how many years he's sober? from a person who may have never struggled with drugs and alcohol. And I say to myself, no way, no way. I love to hear it. I love to hear it every time. Because you know what they're doing every time they say it? They are holding up the head of Goliath. And they're saying, the Goliath is beaten. It's done. And the head is cut off. It's been cut off for five years now. It's been cut off for six years now. How many years? Seven years, 11 years, 7-11. God is saying, don't conceal your victories, confess them. When God does something in our lives, it's always intended to have a two-part effect. The first part is to confirm to us that God is real, God is with us, and that his name is powerful. He will confirm that. That's why you pray about things. God wants to demonstrate the reality of his presence in our lives. So that part is for us, half of it. The other half is so that we would tell the world what God is doing in our lives. Let me tell you this right now. I would not be here if somebody didn't have the courage and the guts to tell me what God did in their lives. I would have never got it through school. I'd have never got it over the news. I would have never got it through sports and coaches. 
even by even by my era, they were we were not allowed to pray or talk about God in public school sports. I mean, where else are people going to get it if we don't tell what God has done in our lives? That's what David's doing. Not only did he cut off the head, he showed it to Saul, and what does he do? He goes into Jerusalem and he shows everybody this is what God did in my life. This man wanted to kill me, and God saved me, and he killed him back. And David's walking around. Don't be afraid. This is what happens. Don't conceal it. Confess it over and over and over again. I love it when people will say, have I ever told you the story of, and they have, and I go, I I lie. I lie. All right. I go, no, I've never heard the story. Can you tell me? They probably told me 10 times. And, and I'm afraid that if I say, oh, yeah, you've told it to me. They're like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to tell it again. No, no, no. There's nothing like when somebody's saying it for the first time. So I, it's not a lie. You know, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a deceptive lie. It's a lie. You know what? I, I haven't heard that. Can you tell me that again? And they go through the story of what God did in their life 10 years ago, 20 years ago, for some of you, 50 years ago. And I'm like, yes, that's what the world needs to hear. There's one God. And we got him. Amen? A problem that is concealed grows in the darkness. A problem that is confessed withers in the light. A couple of things to take home, and I'm, then I'm going to send you home. Uh, for number one, separate what scares you from what scars you. Remember the wiggling snake? It's scary. It is scary. If you've never killed a snake and held the other half when it's like trying to wrap, it's, it's freaky. You look at it like, how is it doing that? I know it's all nerves and stuff like that, but sometimes you got to separate what scares you from what scars you, right? I'm afraid, of, as anybody, of losing my job, living off the street, da da da, da. But, I mean, I'm not going to go live in, you know, a, a, a bomb bunker, you know, to give in to that fear. You know, while it may be scary, that one day we may be living like they do on The Walking Dead, you know. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that you allow to have rule or reign over in your life. That may be scary, but it's not going to be scary. Does that make sense? I'm not going to let it scar me. Uh, you know, sometimes, uh, I mean, a good friend of mine, you know, uh, they're just very convinced the world is going to collapse. Uh, we should all buy farms, grow our own food, da-da-da. And, and you know what? Maybe there's some wisdom to that, but my thought is we're in the best place in the world if the world collapsed. We just take a two- or three-mile walk that way. You got all the almonds, oranges, you know, all the tomatoes you could ever think to eat. So we're fine. I live in a bunker, you know. But uh, anyway, separating what scares you from what scars you. Number two, say to yourself, I'm never above it. I'm never above it. Alcoholics need to stay out of aisle nine. So <laughs> some of you who aren't alcoholics are probably going, what's aisle nine? If you're an alcoholic, you know what aisle nine is. That's where all the booze is, right? It, it's, it's not that I'm not free. Why shove my face in it, right? You stay out of aisle nine, right? If you're a gossiper, stay off Facebook. I mean, what a case of whiskey would be to me is like what Facebook is for a gossiper, you know? Just, I mean, true people who, people who struggle with gossip, I get calls once, twice a month. Oh, pastor, can you pray for me? I posted this thing on Facebook. I knew I shouldn't have posted it. I think to myself, 
you need to be healed from Facebook. You know, you need to be healed. It's it's you're 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 a bit of a you just need to get off Facebook for a while, maybe forever. Adulterers need to block porn. You know, that's only going to stoke that fire and 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 you know create the the desire to reoffend. I like what uh, another. I've been stealing from Jack Hayford all morning, so I'm just going to say it again. I love what he said. He said, "Only the fool." would face Goliath once with God and then in our arrogance turn around and face him again in Saul's armor. And so, you know, sometimes we got to say that I'm never above it. I'm never above it. That's why, that's why I build boundaries to make sure that I don't get tempted into it. Number three, say to the enemy, you are beneath me. You are beneath me. Romans 16, 19 says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet when i first became a believer i was in my late teens i was a young man really and uh i had a friend crazy friend he was like one of those militant christians and he you know he was an odd duck he came over he, he broke all my guns and roses albums I, I had to tell him dude i'm not that saved yet you know just ease up a little bit you know i mean he was like you could see the joy in his eyes ah, you know and like he was you know slashing the devil himself and so but i liked the guy i like maybe i think i liked him because he was so confident in his faith and i i, I respected that you know and so i went over to his house and it was really funny as i went to his room and i looked he had a pile of shoes there and on his shoes he wrote satan on the bottom of all his shoes he wrote satan now here's the thing i so wanted to ask him why but do you ever have someone in your life where when you ask him a question you get a 30 minute answer you know i mean just yes yeah, some people like that right you know and so i'm probably like that for my family you know and so so i'm like you know what i'm not gonna ask him because i don't have the time to hear the whole sermon today you know but I remember about a month later, it, I finally couldn't. I, I said, dude, why do you have I, the devil all over your shoes? I thought we were Christians here. You know why? You, he's like, oh, no, no, He goes, I want the devil to be reminded of his place in my life every time I put on my shoes. That's pretty cool, huh? Number four, <clears throat> say to the world, God did this in me. God did this in me. If we conceal it, it's not meeting the full purpose of God for what he did in our lives. But we confess it. These are telling everybody. You know, people want to hear more. I tell you, when people talk to me, I could explain to them theologically the Christian gospel in about five minutes. I could. I don't say that pridefully. I, I've trained hard for it, master's steady work i mean I, I i really wanted to know how to explain the gospel to someone who doesn't know it you know the truth they don't want to hear that i mean not yet what they want to hear first is yeah, yeah 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 the gospel but what did god do in you that's what the world wants to hear so i start with well I was almost 18, you know, and just kind of going to that story of what God did in my life. And after they hear what God did in my life, 
Then they're like, well, what is this gospel? Who is this Jesus? Because remember, at the end of the day, we're asking them to believe in a Jesus they've never met, a heaven they've never gone to. They want to know that it's real for us. Because it's real for us. And they trust us. And they have hope it can be real for them. Right now, if you're kind of like, you know what, I got a giant in my life. And for some of you, that giant may be the giant of unbelief. You've not believed in God. You've not believed in this whole Jesus thing. And I'm here to tell you with all my heart, He is real. His power is real. And if you pray in the name of Jesus, amazing things happen for those who believe. Maybe the giant has been fear, depression, anxiety, dejection, dismay, pride, arrogance, superiority, laziness. A lot of things. This morning, let Jesus begin to tear down that giant. Let's throw stones together. Everybody say, Jesus. Now think of it. This is my giant. Think of it in your head right now. Say, this is my giant. I ask you to take it down in the name of Jesus. I may love it, but I know it's not good for me. So I need you to take this down and I'll take my stand with Jesus. Amen?